This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Welcome to Recode Media. With Peter Kafka, that is me. I'm recording this the first week after the election. I feel a little bit more relaxed. I feel like I've caught up on some sleep. I hope you are feeling maybe a little better than you did last week. We have plenty of news to keep track of in the last couple months of the year. On today's show, we're going to talk about the news about the news. We've got two interviews. New York Magazine's Reese Weideman is coming by to talk about his recent piece about the fissures and weirdness at the New York Times internal culture. And also to remind us that he wrote Billion Dollar Loser. It's a fantastic book about the rise and fall of WeWork. You should read it. After that, I have a long conversation with David Falkenflick, NPR's excellent media correspondent, about the way Fox News handled the election, the way it's handling Donald Trump's refusal to accept the election, and what Rupert Murdoch's long game is here. It's all good stuff, so let's get to it now. Welcome, Reeves Weideman, who is... Busier than just about anyone I know. He just published a book called Billion Dollar Loser. It's excellent. It's about the epic rise and spectacular fall of Adam Newman and WeWork. I suggest you read it if you have not read it already. Reeves has also published an excellent story about the inner workings of the New York Times. Um, You're making us look bad, Reeves. That story is called... (laughs) They had multiple headlines. It's hard hard to tell what a headline is in 2020. Yeah, but yeah, I'm going sure. with a display copy. Times change. In the Trump years, the New York Times became less dispassionate and more crusading, sparking a raw debate over the paper's future. Last week, I published a story. That I think the headline was like, the Times thrives in crisis. And that was about the <laughs> financial performance about the yeah. Times, which is spectacular. Um, yeah. They're up to 7 million subscribers. They've added 2 million subscribers in the last year. No one there thought they were going to do that. Your piece, deeply reported piece, focuses on sort of the culture war. Is that the right way to describe it, a culture war at the Times? Uh, maybe a bit exaggerated, but I think that's that's about right. It's certainly about the culture, and there are certainly some some fissures and, and battles going on within the place. So, Do you think that fissure is something that's going to really crucially impact the way that the Times operates going forward? Uh, I, I think that it already is, and and it's it's sort of uh, you know it's unclear exactly what the result of that is, but it is clear that the paper is a is a very different place than it was a decade ago, than it was five years ago, and and that's a result in part of a lot of uh, new hires, new 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 blood at the place, um, and that's you know that's younger people, um, that's people in different jobs that didn't exist at the times uh, a half decade ago even. 
Uh, these are all the developers and the programmers and the data scientists and and the crossword app people, sort of that that group that is is now sort of a part of of the inner workings of the place, um, you know, even even more than than they once were. So I think I think just this in, infusion of kind of a new new groups of people in into the paper are are pushing it in in new directions. That being said, you know, the powers that be at the times are your classic sort of newspaper people. And 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 so that is kind of the tension that's pulling the place in different directions and causing all these discussions. And, you know, the, the question is going to be what what's sort of the long, long-term effects of that. Yeah, that's an interesting point you make uh, just now in, in, in the piece. It's not just that the Times has gone and hired a bunch of new reporters and they're sort of changing the way the Times is thinking about journalism. They've gone and hired a bunch of people who, who traditionally wouldn't have had a voice in the way the mm-hmm. New York Times runs. Um, and that's part of the strife here. Um, every New York Times interview I do has to reference Barry Weiss. So we'll, <laughs> let's, let's get that out of the way. Um, after the, the paper published its famous Tom Cotton op-ed mm-hmm. this spring, and again, this assumes that you're following every in and out of the Times like, like all of us do. Yeah. Uh, Barry Weiss, uh, who then was on the opinion side, wrote a tweet storm saying there's a culture war here going on between sort of the, the institutionalists and the new woke uh, set of, of, of employees, and you've got to be on one side or the other. And at the time, everyone sort of derided her for doing that. But it seems like your piece is kind of tracing those same contours of conflict. I th- I think you know there were a couple reasons people got upset with her on that tweet. One was was just because she was tweeting from from a a, a meeting mm-hmm. of, of her colleagues, and and the Times is a place that traditionally, um, at, like most companies pre social media era. Um, you did. You didn't talk about ex- internal goings on, and so, you know, she she managed to kind of upset um, uh, people who just you know hold the time a certain timesian standard to the way they they right. operate in the please, decorum. Please they piss have. outside the tent. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and and so that was one part of it. And then the other part was that it was it was an oversimplification of what was going on. And and with the cotton op ed. Um, there were there were some old wokes. There were a lot of them who were who were objecting to this. There were there were people who were objecting it to, you know, for for non ideological reasons. Um, it, it was it was an oversimplification of of the situation. Uh, you know, as I spoke to people, many people say there there's of course some truth to that. There is there is sort of a younger group. Many of them are coming from. Um, journalism outlets that that in some ways are sort of adv- practice advocacy journalism or or where you're able to sort of put more of yourself and and your thoughts and feelings into your reporting, and so that is that is changing the place. Um, but I, I, I think I think some of the objection was that it's it's kind of not that simple, and that in fact there are there are other divides at the place that that may be kind of even more. Um, more meaningful. So Twitter plays a big role in, in your reporting about this. A lot of this is about what people at the Times are tweeting about what's going on at the Times. And then Slack. And Slack, and Slack yeah. plays a huge role where you've got people sniping at each other. Um, and again, it's not just uh, writers sniping at each other. It's developers complaining mm-hmm. about writers. Um, and you, you've, you've obviously got folks who are eager to share screenshots uh, of various complaints. There was, there was a reference there to some comment that I think oh, it, was, it was some comment someone had made and that Dean Bacay had liked it along with X number of other people. So you're really yes. getting granular into sort of how <laughs> Slack is, works. This is media reporting in, in 2020. How much of this story 
exists simply because of those two technologies and sort of, yeah. uh, you know, that absent the idea that you could easily complain about your employer uh, on Twitter externally and then complain internally um, without sort of significant fear of repercussion. How much of that is, is, is the story, those two technologies? I think it's it's a huge part of it. And, and, you know, Twitter is something the Times has been battling with for, for a few years now of, of how exactly should their reporters sound on Twitter? Should they sound like anyone else cracking jokes and whatnot if you're a political reporter covering the White House? It's, it's a tricky thing. You know, there's a lot of eye rolling at the fact that reporters there get kind of cracked down on very quietly. You'll just get an email from a boss saying, you know, hey, that tweet wasn't great. Um, think about it next time. Um, there, there were also some people who, who, who feel the Times handles it okay. It's a, it's a tricky, it's a tricky thing to pull off. I, I think the new, the new development is Slack, and and Slack, you know, the Times has been on Slack for a few years, but obviously the pandemic has made it more or less the only way that that people communicate beyond beyond Zoom and and whatever else and. And there were, you know, I was talking to reporters who had never really used it. It just wasn't part of their day. So suddenly they were they were on there. And suddenly, especially this summer, once uh, there was all the uproar after after George Floyd's killing and after the cotton op-ed that, that led to a lot of this conversation, it was suddenly the case that you had, uh, again, it was, it was junior people in the newsroom. It was the developers. It was the graphics desk. It was all, all these people who, who did not have a direct line to Dean Baquet or or the masthead suddenly in the, in this open forum were able to express kind of whatever feelings they were having. So it did kind of change this sort of very hier- hierarchical um, way that the Times operated and, and created this more open forum that I think has has produced a lot of this conversation in some ways in healthy ways and then in some ways um, ways that seem to get out of control. Yeah, I found this eye-opening when I went to Vox uh, five years ago now. And mm-hmm. at the time, they were they were big advocates of Slack, and there was an open room where you could ask the, the CEO anything, and mm-hmm. you could do it anonymously. And and there were some some internal conflicts that got pretty gnarly. And, and it's Vox Media is now your employer as well. I've noticed Indeed. that Vox has pulled back on sort of uh, the free and open flow of, of Slack, that it's much more segregated and there's an all hand, there are various all hands rooms, but they're not really, they don't encourage you to sort of sound off there. And it seems like they've, they've pulled back from that simply because you can't really, it doesn't seem like you can really run an operation where everyone can pop on uh, the internet and say anything they want. Do you imagine the times pulling back similarly? I think they will. I and and as I was kind of talking to some of the people making these decisions, it they're trying to sort it out. I mean, I, I think everyone knows that this this giant Slack room with two thousand people kind of saying whatever they want with no real prompt to for exactly what it's supposed to be is not the way to do this. On the other hand, it, the Times doesn't want to just say, you know, hey, software developer, stay over there do your coding, um, just stay out of the newsroom, there's an acknowledgement that that those people are part of the news gathering and news reporting process now. And I think what this summer revealed is that there's a need to educate. There's a need to educate for both sides. I think for for a while, there was a, a lot of education of the newsroom of, of <laughs> convincing journalists and editors, you know, these new tech people aren't the bad guys, like here's how they're going to help us. And there wasn't enough education in the other direction of explaining kind of to to the new group of people how journalism works, how, you know, how, how is a headline written? Who decides what stories are, are important? And and I think that's something that that the Times is is going to, I know it's something that they're going to 
put more effort into trying to have that sort of educational outreach. A lot of your piece focuses on the Times opinion section, various personalities there. James Bennett was pushed out uh, after the Tom Cotton op-ed. And it seems like, one, that's because that's where sort of, it would make sense for you to focus on that because that's where the news is. But you also talk about the fact that the opinion section is a very important sort of engine for the Times. Uh, One of the things that really uh, stood out to me was a stat you cited saying, uh, opinion produces roughly 10% of the Times output while bringing in 20% of its page views. The Times doesn't necessarily get paid for page views, but it still gives you a sense yeah. of, sort of how big a deal that section is. And there's a constant question about what is the future of the opinion section of the Times. You float the idea that maybe the, the one at some point the opinion section goes away and the Times says there's no distinction between opinion and reporting anymore. Where do you think this goes? I don't think it goes there, and that's, you know, it's something that's been floated, but but I think that would be a pretty wholesale rejiggering of, of the way things have worked, and I, I don't think they're, uh, I don't think that's going to happen, but, but kind of everything else is sort of on the table, you know, they talked about, you know, why do we endorse candidates? Why, why did they endorse Joe Biden? You know, like, like everyone kind of knew that was going to happen. And, and what's, what's the point of right. that? And, um, and previously endorsed both Elizabeth Warren and Amy Klobuchar for, for the, the Democratic. A uh, very, seat. a very tortured yeah. sort of dis- strange decision there. Um, and, and so, you know, but thinking back to the cotton op-ed, you know, it, part of the issue there was, was it was just a rushed process and the, and the process failed them there. Um, I, you know, and there, there was a lot of pushback on, is a, you know, the, part of that conversation was, is this an appropriate thing to run? And, and I do think in, in certain ways, there were obvious flaws in that, in that piece. Uh, but, but I don't think the powers that be necessarily think that a piece like that, making an argument like that is inappropriate for the times. Um, and, and that I, I do think there's going to be in the future, um, they are going to be publishing controversial op-eds. Now, I, I, I think they, they're figuring out what processes can be put in place to make it more clear when something is an opinion versus a news article. To, to, they are hiring more fact-checkers. Um, they are publishing fewer stories every day. So there's, there's some of that happening, but I think the impulse towards publishing controversial opinions, publishing things that exist both, frankly, um, far to the left and and far to the right of sort of the, the kind of center, center left place that the Times has traditionally been will be a part of, of the paper's future. And it's how they see both the editorial mission and, and I, I do think some of the business mission. And, how is, so, and that ties into this idea that the Times which I've talked about and reported on, and it's well-documented, that the Times has moved its business model over the last 10 years from an ad-based business to a subscription-based business. And this this question has gotten more acute in the Trump era, which is if you are a, if your business is based on your subscribers and your subscribers are, you think, largely liberal, uh, many of them may have even subscribed to the papers in a sort of active resistance against Trump, when you're publishing stuff that doesn't comport with their ideological views, are you risking... The business model? Are you risking pissing off uh, someone who's going to uh, unsubscribe because of a Tom Cotton op-ed? I, my gut is no, and I, I this comes up all the time. I, I don't know the numbers. The one number I know, and from after the Tom Cotton op-ed was, you know, that day there were there were a couple hundred people who unsubscribed. Last quarter, the Times added hundreds of thousands of subscribers, yep. and they've been doing that quarter after quarter. So they added two million in the last year. 
Yeah, it's 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 really remarkable. And so I, I don't necessarily think that publishing those kinds of pieces hurts the business. Um, you had a line in there that, that really struck me. Uh, it was a quote from someone at the time saying, yeah. hate drives readership more than any of us care to admit. Yeah, and and I think the cotton op-ed was was obviously a step too far. But but you know the other pieces when when they do have the more conservative writers, like you know the comments sections are are crazy, and and people love to kind of engage with it um, in that way. Uh, you know, and the, the the flip side of this is is of course they want to appeal to more conservative readers, just to broaden the the audience, and and not not to say that they want to be seen as more conservative. They want to be seen as as the place where you get your news and you get a wide range of opinions as a, as a smart thinking person um, in the world, it has obviously become difficult for the Times to get conservative readers under, under Trump. And, and, and that is in part because Trump has, has attacked the paper um, endlessly and has just sort of had this stain on it to where if you, if you are not, a, if you are not already a, a reader of the Times and, and you are a conservative, you are a, a Trump supporter, it's very unlikely that you were going to subscribe to the Times no matter how many conservative op-eds they ran. Let's do a, a, a last bit of a, a Times Kremlinology, which is a cliche. Sure. Uh, up until the spring, uh, the, the the discussion within the paper and outside the paper was the next the next executive editor, it's Dean McKay's current job, um, is going to be one of three different white guys. Uh, mm-hmm. One of those white guys is James Bennett. He no longer works there. At least you two white guys, Joe Kahn and Clifford Levy. W- what's the state of play right now? And everyone's guessing. Um, no one really has an inside inside view here. It is really difficult to interview a New York Times employee without them leading the discussion towards uh, who is going to replace Dean at some point. It is the, their favorite parlor game. Um, it, it is all guesswork at this point. Uh, clearly, after this summer, there was some feeling of like, you know, maybe the next person will be a white guy, but it feels pretty bad that that's all we have to consider. And so there, there's a hope that there would be a broader sort of range of candidates. There, there is a more diverse slate, sort of a rung or two down, um, down the the chain. Um, and so some of those people, you know, names have been tossed out. Carolyn Ryan is is one who was recently promoted to deputy managing editor. Uh, Mark Lacey, the national editor, is is one that that people talk about. Um, you know, Dean is supposed to retire um, at the end of next year. Um, we'll see if that that happens. I, I I think you know he's. I don't think he's going to stay for a decade. But but right, I think it's, it's custom, not but not a requirement that he steps. Yeah, down. and I, I I my my sense of it is that they they want to pick the right person. And it, it very well could be Joe Kahn or, or Cliff Levy. People people generally speak very highly of them. And, and I think, you know, most of the newsroom would, would be behind it if, if that's the decision that it ends up. But I, I, I think in general, there's there's a desire to, you know, people like Dean um, from from the executive ranks down to the, the reporters in the newsroom. So there's there's no rush to push him out. And I think they will they will figure out the right person when when the time comes. Before I go, I, I want to make sure we get a chance to plug Billion Dollar Loser because, like I said, you had a busy fall. And it's a really <laughs> good book. And you have to remember that a year and change ago, uh, the rise and and stunning plummeting collapse of, of WeWork uh, was an astonishing story that we couldn't get enough of. And there's a reason for that. It's a great story. Uh, and yeah. you've made it into a great book. What's a great previously unreported nugget that's in your book that we can use to tantalize a reader? 
good question. Well, since we're talking about the media, my fav- one of my favorite little anecdotes was uh, The Guardian. Um, the, the U.S. arm of The Guardian briefly shared an office with WeWork, um, with WeWork headquarters. And there was one time where WeWork was celebrating something. And uh, Adam Newman, uh, the, the founder and CEO of WeWork, was kind of giving this big, raucous speech. Uh, they started blaring music um, uh, and and it became this big party at you know like four thirty in the afternoon. Um, meanwhile, the Guardian people are trying to continue working their jobs, and and uh, this this fight sort of developed uh, between the two, where uh, a, a Guardian reporter walked over to Adam and and asked him to please you know calm things down, and he very silently turned over to the stereo and and turned the volume up. Uh, a little bit louder. So um, not the most important anecdote, but but I think it's at least um, illustrative of of the inside uh, tale we've tried to tell of, of this very strange company and, and their very strange rise over a decade and and really a uh, swift fall last, uh, last year. It's a very strange company, a very strange rise, and it's, it's a great look at how money has been working over the last yeah. decade. Um, and again, if you're listening to this podcast, so you're interested in the business of, of media, you're interested in business broadly, um, I can't recommend this highly enough. Um, so go buy it. Go help great. Reeves out. He's working exactly. very hard Thank for you. all of us. I have. I'm very tired. So all right. I'd appreciate that. Get some rest. Thank you, Reeves. Thanks, Peter. Thanks again to Reeves for chatting. He is a really impressive guy. Next up, another really impressive guy, David Folkenflik from NPR. But first, a word from a sponsor. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance... Who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, the future of work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to the future of work, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Prop G Pod wherever you get your podcasts. I'm here with NPR media correspondent David Fulkenflick. David, welcome. It's been, we've never done it. So thank you for finally coming on. It's been too long, as they say. It has been too long. We're recording this on a Tuesday afternoon. Maybe things will change radically in the next couple of days. Maybe not. But here is the state of play right now. Joe Biden is president-elect of the United States. Even Fox News says this. Uh, But many prominent Republicans, both in the Trump administration and sort of allies like Mitch McConnell, aren't saying that. And some are kind of even advancing his bogus fraud theories. How is the media covering this incredibly unique situation that we kind of imagined might happen, but still we're hoping wouldn't happen? And how should they be covering it? It's a really good question, right? Because uh, there are certain things that shouldn't be partisan, shouldn't be ideological. The idea of the integrity of the electoral process, the idea of calling out problems with the process, 
uh, the idea of people trampling norms. That sounds familiar. Mm -hmm. These shouldn't be ideological or partisan things, and yet they've become that in the, the uh, under the current leadership, under President Trump and under then-candidate Trump in 2016. Uh, so right now, you're seeing the press, I think, fairly declaratively say, Joe Biden, whether or not you like it, whether or not you love it, is the president-elect, and he will be the person inaugurated in January of, of next year. And yet you've seen incredible resistance to this. Uh, and we have to reflect the fact that there is resistance to it, the fact that there are claims of fraud being made, but also to acknowledge these claims are without evidence, these claims are baseless. And after a certain point, unless something resembling evidence is provided that can hold up to some kind of scrutiny, that these claims themselves are fraudulent. And I think that we have to be, uh, you know, at least in terms of the idea of widespread fraud uh, being committed under mm -hmm. election officials in numerous states uh, where those officials are going to be both Democrats and Republicans, right? And so I think that you're seeing the press step up to that. You know, the press is not a, it doesn't move as a single entity, but you are seeing, as you pointed out, Fox News being among those news organizations calling uh, former vice president, the president-elect Biden. And yet you are seeing incredible tensions within Fox, which I suspect we'll get to in a few minutes. Yeah, we'll get to that. I mean, we, we kind of had dry runs for this in the past over things like climate change, which most people should not see as a sort of a debate, right? There's climate change, it's real, it's man-made. And then there's still, there's been a, a, a very effective campaign to sort of make that a debate. And it strikes me that this is kind of what we're headed into right now, where initially we, everyone said, yes, President Biden is president-elect. And the Trump administration, I guess intentionally, uh, has been saying, no, this is now a matter of debate. And I'm wondering if the longer they're able to sort of argue that it's a debate and get the press to report the fact that they're treating it as if it's a debate, does that eventually then become something that's we're legitimately going to have arguments about? Or another way of putting it, is there a way to sort of move away from having a fake debate about a known thing? Well, I think one of the things that's coming on the press to do is to show how dislocating it is for a political figure, and particularly one who currently holds the office of president of the United States, to cling to this. It's not just a question of being a sore loser. It's mm -hmm. not just a question of being, you know, that, hey, people need to give him time to grieve this, as you've seen numerous uh, less than brave Republican uh, figures and Trump allies, associates and officials say to different outlets. This is destabilizing. It's destabilizing in terms of the message it sends to people in the federal government. You've seen people kind of thrown over the side uh, in recent days by virtue of their perceived insufficient loyalty to the president, by virtue of their perhaps being seen as people who aren't willing to repeat the yep. fiction that somehow Trump was stripped of this. So I think that the story is that you probably want to focus on as much or more about questions about challenges being filed in Philadelphia or Pennsylvania courtrooms is, what does this do to the transition? What messages does this send to the workforce? What kinds of struggles are going on internally? What kinds of messages does this send to foreign leaders, some of whom are looking for stability after four years of tumult, and some of whom may have leaders who themselves want to hold on to power, even if illegitimately, uh, even if in, in, in the face of elections, uh, 
reflecting the will of the people in a different direction. So I think those are the kinds of stories that you present to the public so that there's a full tapestry, not just a single thread being presented. That the idea is, you know, we can say that this election is being disputed by Trump administration officials or by Trump uh, campaign officials, but we have to say without evidence, without basis, without any facts being marshaled in a way that I, I think it's fair to say is damaging to the credibility and electoral system and I think is intended to damage uh, Joe Biden and his ability to lead as president moving forward. We saw Fox, uh, we're going to spend a bunch of time talking about Fox. We saw Fox break away from uh, a White House uh, press conference a day or two ago and said, uh, press secretary is making unfounded claims about the election. We're just not going to show that to you. Um, that's an extraordinary step for Fox. Have they done stuff that's sort of equally uh, astonishing over the last couple of days that I haven't seen? I've, I've been intent- trying to watch a lot of Fox over the last week for this very reason, but I'm, I'm not a regular viewer. I mean, I watch Fox a fair amount. Uh, when news is heavy, I try to see what Fox is doing and then contrast that and see mm-hmm. what other folks are doing uh, in both broadcast and cable, but also, uh, you know, in different kinds of sites. The medium matters, though, because the immediacy of cable news is such that the logic seemingly compels people to take things live because they can, rather than because they should. And Fox News, particularly in the Trump years, has been happy to turn over vast portions of its real estate to Trump and various administration officials in ways that it's been rewarded for. Its viewership is off the charts. As you know, you know, there are times where Fox right now, Fox, I think, was the top rated cable station, not cable news station, but cable station for daytime and primetime in recent days. Well, that's rewarding them for covering this mm-hmm. as a conflict, even as their reporters are saying this isn't the case. Neil Cavuto pulled out on his four o'clock show of uh, Kelly McEnany, the White House press secretary's briefing, in which she was saying things that clearly weren't grounded in fact, that weren't true that he felt were lies. Mm-hmm. And he just broke right in. And you could tell he was on a hair trigger, that he had essentially warned his producers he might want to do that. And one of the things about uh, Fox is that its figures are big enough and uh, carry enough weight with their audiences that they do have some discretion day-to-day, minute-to-minute about what they do. That is not what you're seeing Brett Bayer, their chief political anchor, do most of the time. But he is trying to, I think, thread a needle That is, I think he and certainly his bosses are trying to ground their coverage in the fact that Joe Biden has won this election Uh, and yet sort of gingerly steer their audiences and their sources and even Trump administration officials to that fact without offending the sensibility of their core viewer who happens to overlap neatly with Trump's core supporter. So this matters, and this is the the heart of the interview here, I'm announcing. This matters both uh, because it's the State of the Union, right? This is, are we going to convince tens of millions of people that this that the president is actually the president? Or can we do so, so peacefully? And it's also a dilemma for Rupert Murdoch. Um, there's a lot of money at stake here. How has he been approaching this, and are you surprised by any of that approach? So Murdoch is, uh, I guess, three things. You know, he is... Uh, an ideologue, a very conservative figure. Uh, he is uh, somebody who wants proximity to power. And he is uh, a canny businessman, uh, as well as, in some ways, uh, a newspaper man and journalist at heart. He's very much a newspaper man. Right? And, but a newspaper man in a different tradition than the, American, than the 
recent American tradition of the past, call it 50 to 75 years. It kind of mm-hmm. harks back to an earlier age and one that still exists in Britain and in his native Australia in significant part, but not only because of him. And that's the idea that you can have fun with the news. It's a lark. It's fun. Reporting is great. Sometimes it's for the people you like. Sometimes it's for the people you're Gossip is great. Gossip is great. And that's certainly how he came to know Trump in, in New York City, because Trump was a great source about other people, particularly Trump was a great source about Trump. And yet you would use those news organizations, those outlets, uh, as a way of steering support to figures that you thought you could have an in with or that you wanted to get elected. So in other countries, Murdoch always steered people to the center, to this, the two parties, sort of center left to far right would be where his candidates would be. In this country, he really didn't do that so much except at the local level or the state level. And in this country, he's put in, gone in whole hog with the Republican Party. And but he has, he's also gone in whole hog in the past with people he thought were likely to win, right? He supported Hillary Clinton at one point. Uh, right? It wasn't clear that he supported Hillary Clinton for president. He supported her for Senate because she was a winner. Mm-hmm. You know, there was fear in, in Roger Ailes and others that he might support Obama because Obama looked like a winner mm-hmm. and a pragmatist. And he pulled back from that. And he endorsed John McCain, who he had issues with, but was probably closer on policies anyway. But there was some question about that as two of his adult children were pushing towards that, James and Elizabeth. Uh, that was then. He threw in his lot with Trump, not because he liked Trump, not because he respected Trump, but because Trump was going to win. And because Fox News's audience was hungering for the red meat that Trump was providing every day on Fox and other networks. So why not have it be Fox and have sort of a lock on that? So what did it surprise me what you saw happen? Well, what you saw was sort of reluctantly Fox came to the uh, convictions of its own conclusions because of its decision desk. Uh, being out in front of Arizona, which put Fox in a very difficult position, uh, but, you know, at minimum, maintained the credibility of the news side. Right. To, to remind people, if you weren't following this in the middle of the night on Tuesday night, uh, Fox called Arizona well before everybody else did. Uh, as you and others have reported, the the Trump camp uh, blew up and, and pestered everyone from Rupert Murdoch on down to change it for, for days, and they didn't. That's right. And so— you know, what did they do? They, they had this firestorm in response, and they brought the, on the head of that decision desk a num- number of times to defend himself. Some people said, look, this is Fox standing up to uh, Trump. I saw it as much as Fox, in a sense, slightly distancing itself and saying, well, we've outsourced this, and this is what they've come up with. Don't ma- blame me, Brett Bayer, for this. I'm just reporting to you what is. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a little bit of a separation there. But Brett, you know, tried to, you know, one of the things you asked me what was what was remarkable uh, there was an instance a few days ago where Brett Baer was interviewing uh, Ronna McDaniel, the uh, chairwoman of the Republican Party. And she was making these claims of fraud. And she was saying, well, we're going to hold back on providing the evidence for this at this time. But this is real. And we see it in Michigan and other places. And he said, you know, he says, I hear what you're saying. And those are real concerns. And we hear what you're saying about the question of election observers being able to do all the things you'd like them to do. But that's different than electoral fraud. And he said, you know, there's a million such instances alleged on the Internet. And every time we chase one down, it turns out there's nothing there. You guys have no evidence. Now, that is a strong thing for Fox's chief political anchor, someone who I think has shown himself to be, uh, if not sympathetic, at least somewhat indulgent to the Trump administration compared to some other anchors on other networks. Particularly Shep Smith, his former colleague at, at yeah, Fox only News. by Fox standards would he be considered sort of middle of the road, down the center. But by Fox standards, right. he is. But by Fox standards, he's really trying to do that, and he's trying to thread the needle. He's trying to land the plane, and she's not going for it. And meanwhile, people on 
their opinion shows, although Neil Cavuto essentially has the voice to offer opinion, but people on their primetime shows, people uh, as well like Lou Dobbs, uh, Maria Bartiromo for Fox Business, Janine Pirro, are not only uh, friends and advisors of the president, but on the air spitting fire about this and not only indulging and allowing talk of electoral fraud that's baseless, but supporting it amplifying it and giving it muscle. And this is where we've always been. This is where we've always been with Fox News, right? Which is the, the Brett Bears of the world are, are the straight news. And you can put that in quotes. And then you've got the more popular people uh, who are who are fervent Trump loyalists. Um, and again, we, we sort of imagine this could, we could see this scenario. Um, and we are seeing this scenario. There's versions of this throughout Murdoch land, right? The New York Post kind of gingerly suggesting that Trump might be done. The Journal, also owned by Murdoch, put out an editorial saying he really should, you know, Except the the votes, but after like explaining why the Democrats were terrible, um, and that's still on the op ed page, are we sort of stuck here until January twentieth? Do you see this this moving one way or the other? I think the Fox News sides are going to put it, you know, slightly increase the ratio of uh, you know fact to indulging the debate. One of the things about the Fox News side is they've done everything you've said, but they really are allowing a lot of oxygen and time to people, uh, essentially, if, to use your analogy about climate change, who are climate deniers. You know, to an extent where I think it's probably giving too much oxygen for it. It's mm-hmm. allowing legitimacy for the debate to continue. And simply to allow the debate to foster and to like, hey, look, let a thousand flowers bloom. This is freedom of of speech after all. People have opinions on this that are heartfelt. This is how we work through these things. That's true, but it does seem to me that that Murdoch, uh, you know, this is not a, a brilliantly plotted out plan. I think they're strategizing on the, on the run, and I think this is improvised in many ways. But Murdoch is pragmatic. He knows that Biden has won. Uh, he w- was warning of this before the election where the polls seemed even more extreme mm-hmm. that, that Biden would win, but it seems like a fairly convincing victory ultimately. And yet he doesn't want to lose those viewers. He doesn't want Trump to continue pounding him. And so what I think they're going to settle on is a strategy where they, you know, Biden will not be blocked from being president by, it seems, any court challenge or the the people at Fox. But they will try to damage and erode any legitimacy Biden has walking in. You know, Bill Clinton, conservatives, and obviously Bill Clinton's first term was before Fox News was created in 96. But Bill Clinton walked in. And for both of those terms, Republicans used to say, I used to cover politics in the 90s. Republicans would say, Clinton's not really a legitimate president. He didn't crack 50%. I remember that. Obama comes in and they say, he's not a legitimate president. He was born in Africa. Not true. Mm -hmm. Never true. No basis for this. But, you know, Fox gave that a hell of a lot of of, uh, time and, and play. Biden comes in, they're going to say this is electoral fraud. And you're just going to hear this throughout. And they will find ways to go after Biden and Hunter Biden. And there may be legitimate things to look at there. But a lot of the stuff in Murdoch's New York Post in the days before the election didn't seem to, to live up to that standard. And then they'll go after Kamala Harris. And they'll go after Nancy Pelosi. And they'll go after AOC and the squad. And they're going to have their targets. And Fox flourishes in opposition. So even though Fox sort of uh, uncharacteristically did incredible business with Trump, they know what a winning formula looks like when they're going after someone as opposed to playing defense on someone. Right. So they they have a, a, a game plan for Biden or any other Democrat and president. And we're sort of seeing it play out now. But there's a twist here, right, which is there seems to be a genuine fear. And you've alluded to it a couple of times to, to Murdoch that Fox News has become sort of Trump news and that. If they anger Trump too much or if Trump storms off in a huff, that they lose 
some of that audience. Do you think that is a, an actual plausible fear? They would have to go somewhere else, and that's where I get stuck on it. Look, uh, they... I think it is... I think it's a palpable fear. I don't know if it's a plausible fear, but I know from people I've talked to inside this week that there's concerns about, hey, can Trump ding us? Can he go to uh, OAN, uh, the One America Network, which is, you know, far Trumpier Trumpy than ever the Trump was Trump? But also, let's right? be clear, do, like doesn't really exist, right? Uh, it has like 11 viewers. Right. But it lives online as sort of a Facebook meme factory for right-wing right conspiracy theorists. You know, their Newsmax uh, has and par, Parlay, is it Parlay or Parlor? Parlay, right? I'm going with Parlor. Uh, parlor. That's how I imagine like most of its audience would say it. Yeah. But who knows? As, a, as opposed to, to the Francophiles uh, yeah. who, are, uh, who, are, who are populating the place. I don't think you know, there's an accent aigu on it. Right. So, so uh, I believe Newsmax and Parlor have had significant, you know, downloads of its app, which isn't mm -hmm. in and of itself proving anything. But uh, Newsmax put out statements, and I have not yet been able to evaluate the how well-grounded it is, but claiming it beat Fox Business and uh, CNBC in ratings for some shows in the past week. Okay. You may well have received those, too. I did not evaluate them because I just haven't had time. But, like, there are little things that Fox people are noticing. Right, and so there's, there's, about. there's little things, and if you have a giant business, you, you're, you, it behooves you to pay attention to that. But the way I look at it is, Donald Trump is a TV person. He's not online. Like, I guess he's tweeting, but very often he has people tweeting for him. He reads print newspapers and magazines, and he watches television. It seems hard for me to imagine him being satisfied being on the OAN network or the Parlor Newsmax network or uh, even a Sinclair syndicate of, of uh, broadcast TV stations, which is a meaningful group of people. It's not the same thing as being on Fox. Um, and I also, you know, this is the same group that uh, had their Four Seasons Total Landscape press conference. It seems very hard, and, and you can look at their two Republican National Conventions, it seems very hard for me to imagine them actually running a, a, a brand new, up from scratch, news network, let alone getting distribution. So it seems like you're going to end up with Rupert Murdoch and Donald Trump reaching some kind of accommodation where Donald Trump gets to be on TV in some way that is beneficial for him monetarily um, and also, you know, engages with the audience. And there's obvious upside for Murdoch. Tell me I'm wrong. I, you know, Peter Kafka, I love telling you you're wrong, but oh, I actually, man. this is basically what I've been telling my editors uh, that I think is a much more likely scenario. You know, what would work with Trump would be if he could take not OAN per se, but an OAN and a Newsmax or a Blaze and syndicate it within a Sinclair or something and try to figure out ways he could be on TV in hundreds of, you know, look, if Sinclair had Trump on, Sinclair's ratings would definitely rise for sure, right? Mm -hmm. But I think it's much more likely that Rupert pays him, I'm making up the figure, 10 million bucks to be- I was going to give him 30, but yeah, whatever you know, amount you want. Whatever it is, close to exclusive- uh, you know, you can do X number of minutes on broadcast, but not cable or something. And then Trump comes on and talks to his three best friends in the morning for sort of, uh, you know, a homeroom and uh, a little friendly time and speaks his mind and trashes the administration and talks about what might happen in 2024, just like he did for years on Fox and Friends ahead of running in 2016. Uh, and to be honest, on the Today Show, when he was uh, promoting NBC properties right. for The Apprentice, let's not forget that. But Trump... 
the two reasons why I think this is the case is this. There are two things you need to do if you want to build something significant from scratch or from near scratch. And that is uh, sweat equity and equity equity, Mm -hmm. right? Real money. Trump's not going to put in his own money. And I think it's a real open question whether people will back him in the same way if they don't see him taking back the White House in 2024 uh, as, as an investment. And uh, I don't see Donald Trump as the kind of guy who wants to put in real hours figuring this out. So we are in agreement on this. Uh, let's see if you agree with me on this one. I also think that Donald Trump as a attractive media figure is less likely over the next four years. Obviously, he's got an enormous fan base, but he will be a loser. He will tell the same stories that he always tells, and he will not be able to trigger the libs because he doesn't have access to nuclear codes and can't write executive orders. He's a guy tweeting. He's a guy on talk radio. He's a guy calling into a TV show. Um, and I wonder if even the the ardent Trump fans will tire of that over time. I know it's dangerous to predict that people will get tired of Donald Trump. We started saying that in 2015 and we were all wrong. Um, but it seems like that will be less fun for everyone involved. And then part of the Trump brand, right, is actually fun, even though it sounds it sounds otherwise to us um, on the other side of it often, but it's, it's fun for him and fun for his audience to get people upset. Well, the rallies are fun. Mm-hmm. He has an understanding of the crowd. I don't mean it's necessarily fun for everybody listening to this or everybody listening yep. at all, but there's a certain call and response. It was exhilarating, if draining and depleting, for journalists covering him in 2015, 2016, because why did they carry him live? They simply didn't know what he'd say next. And that is, in some ways, the definition of a fascinating live news event. That's why you watch the end of a football game. Right. He might might drive the truck over the cliff. He might might drive the truck over the cliff. And he certainly did many times, sometimes numerous times in the same speech. So people carried him live and nobody carried anybody else. You know, part of what it's dependent on is almost this... these individual decisions that amount to a collective decision. Do we give him oxygen on other platforms? Does Ben Shapiro uh, go all out in promoting this stuff because that's how they get clicks for the first six months of the Biden administration? Does Fox pick it up and then parlay whatever outrage shows up on Twitter into a segment on Hannity every night? You know, it's hard for me to think that Sean Hannity as almost convictionless as he truly seems to be in some ways— uh, won't reflect the thinking of Donald Trump uh, for the near future, for the next years. You yeah, know, yeah. They, I, I guess they'll, I get they'll close, go right? into they'll go into Trump mode at the beginning. I just think over time, and maybe it's just pure wish fulfillment on my end that that he will become less compelling of a figure. I think that that inherently he's going to seem depleted. It's going to be like a, like a, a massive uh, dirigible deflating. I think over time. But you know, Murdoch doesn't want to allow that to rise. He may not give Trump money. He may figure, hey, Trump can is going to want the airtime that I can provide him, and he may be as confident as his people project that there is no threat. But my guess is they want to somehow reach an agreement. Uh, and come to an understanding so that you isolate the threat for what for them, you know, if you make over a billion, two billion dollars a year in profits, it's nothing. It's paperclip money. Yep. Um, so we're imagining a scenario where Donald Trump is a recurring Fox guest, where Rupert Murdoch is still hands on running Fox News, even though he's not technically running Fox News. His son Lachlan is technically running it. Um, James Murdoch, as we've talked about in the past, his his 
left the company, left the family company, and he was always sort of the the liberal who wouldn't say he was a liberal, and he's gradually getting louder and louder. He still owns a significant chunk of of the Murdoch family empire. Is there, and I think I've talked to Brian Stelter about it, it sounds like a liberal fantasy to me, but there's this floating theory that he comes in and tries to come back into the business or or do something to muck up this thing that his, his father and, and his brother and he himself helped build. Do you see any version of that? I think that's possible. You know, Lachlan has a pull position, right? Yep. You know, the two of them been jockeying for 20 years. And uh, because of the scandals in Britain with the uh, the news of the world, uh, James was off course. Lachlan had taken himself out of the running. Then Lachlan magically materializes by his father's side after after a few days. And the ascent has been slow and steady and constant. And the once favored over older son is the favored son again. And, you know, I think Elizabeth Murdoch... Uh, I mean, it's very similar to a lot of the themes of succession on HBO, mm-hmm. right? Elizabeth Murdoch, you know, has felt slighted that it was assumed it would be one of the two brothers to run the company. And I think she's right that that has been the operating assumption and right that her father is somewhat misogynistic about that. I think James Murdoch had a good run as a as a television and satellite executive uh, in a way that you really can't ascribe to Lachlan. You know, James Murdoch, could you see him being a some sort of network executive, senior you know, conglomerate executive, if his last name were Kafka or Folkenflick or Smith, I think it's possible. Uh, I don't think you'd see that for Lachlan. You know, I'm not saying James would have had the opportunities yes. to do what he did, but I'm just saying he had some decent records there. I think he, there are people around him and there are people near him who's, who would say, don't count him out and that we don't know how this goes. You say he retains a sizable stake, My understanding is he has the exact same stake as Lachlan. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a family trust. They essentially have six uh, parts of that trust, of which four are votes, and those are the children uh, not with Wendy Deng Murdoch, Murdoch's uh, third ex-wife. If you want to read a good succession story, by the way, go back and read the old Wall Street Journal profile, Wendy Deng. Fabulous. This is before Rupert Murdoch uh, bought the paper. It's it's some of the best reading you'll ever do. Go on. So I would say that's not impossible. I do think there's sort of a, there's always these dreams of somebody doing the right thing, somebody coming in and, and saving us all. You know, it's, 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 I think it's kind of a magical thinking because the model is so strong. Could you make that kind of money from Fox News if you severed the relationship that people have with the expectation that their frustrations, that their distrust, that their anger will be stoked by this source of information and misinformation. It seems impossible to imagine anyone walking away from it. Because even if you buy the theory that James Murdoch is somehow going to do this heroic thing and come and try to steer Fox News, that audience isn't going anywhere. Or, or that audience needs to be, someone will step in and make that audience happy. Well, look, the other fact that people will point out is that that audience is old and getting older. And at a certain point, either Fox is just uh, managing the decline, although they're not declining an audience at the moment, yep. but that they're managing what will be ultimately a uh, an actuarial issue for them, uh, or they're not. <laughs> I love the deadpan. That's very good NPR deadpan, the actuarial right. issue. They, they were literally dying off. Before I let you go, I want to I wanna indulge you. Sorry, that sounds rude. I want to ask you about a story that that you've been reporting on for months and months and months, and I don't see picked up by many of your colleagues, including me. 
What is the U.S. Agency for Global Media and why should we care about it? Right. Well, the U.S. Agency for Global Media is one whose work uh, most Americans, certainly Americans in this country, will almost certainly never see or will bounce off them if they happen to run into it. It is the agency that oversees the Voice of America, uh, which is broadcasts uh, to, I believe, something like 250 million people across the world overseas. It's literally Uh, state-run media. It is literally state-run media. But it was created during World War II to not be a propaganda outfit, or at least not in the way that we think of it. It was created to provide news to people in access-controlled countries about the war that they could trust uh, so that if the Germans were defeated or in a battle, people would believe it. And as a result, what they did was they reported when the Americans and the Allies were defeated in battles. They reported a lot of stories that didn't reflect well on the fortunes of the Allies. And in so doing, they built a lot of trust. Well, it's kind of a soft kind of power. It's kind of a uh, an enlightened diplomacy. Because what you're doing is you're providing real news to people. And you're saying, this is what America is. We provide news even when it's inconvenient. Yeah, we're, we're burnishing America's brand. Um, with, by doing by something real with journalism, right. real journalism, not, uh, you know, it carried editorials reflecting the position of the U.S. State Department, but they were clearly marked. And that was separate from often boisterous American political debate, not just reflecting the points of views of the government, but equally reflecting the point of views of critics uh, here or abroad. In years following, of course, in the Cold War, they added a bunch of different agencies. So Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, Radio Free Asia. Uh, there's the two uh, broadcasters uh, uh, targeting Cuba because of the Castro regime and the control of information there. There's uh, similarly set up during the Bush years uh, outfits uh, looking at the Middle East. There's a bunch of different players there. And one thing that's always been concerned is what you talked about. Is this propaganda? Is this serving the specific administration? Is this serving specific politicians? Well, there have been tussles over the years over whether or not specific coverage was fair, over whether or not there was political pressure brought to bear. And I'd covered some of them in the George W. Bush years uh, that were of a much smaller scale, but that were real. And and they happen under Democrats and Republicans. In this instance, uh, Trump put in this uh, June uh, after basically being blocked for two years, a conservative documentarian named Michael Pack, who had done work for PBS and with the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, had done some work of some uh, stature, some well-regarded work, but clearly conservative outlook. And he came to office when he was finally confirmed in June of this year, uh, espousing incredible Trump platitudes and, and, and rhetoric, talking about the deep state, talking about fake news, talking about not being able to trust his own reporters, questioning their credibility, and saying it was time to clear house. One of the things that has been very important to folks at The Voice of America and its sister networks is the idea of a firewall. And that is that if there are issues raised about coverage, those issues can be flagged for the leadership of Voice of America, but it is journalists within Voice of America who take a look at that coverage and they either hire outside journalists or uh, area experts to look if there are problems. So we have we have a, we have a, a group of journalists who are used to working with a, with an understanding that they are independent journalists doing good work, uh, and they are now under the leadership of of a sort of kind of standard Trump crony. Now what? 
Right. So a guy who who uh, was friendly with Steve Bannon, who before he was there saying it was important Michael Pack gets in, you know, the fish is rotting from the head mm-hmm. about Voice of America and these things. So he comes in and I'm able to report, uh, uh, thanks to, you know, some, I think, pretty brave people within Voice of America, a series of actions he took to bring the place to heal. Uh, he basically... Uh, fired almost all of the network chiefs. And the reason he didn't fire the heads of the Voice of America was that the two top leaders resigned a couple days before he took office. Uh, He ultimately suspended, claiming that there were security violations, uh, six of his top executives who had in various ways objected to his plans for the agency. Uh, And he said they were essentially creating a climate where uh, espionage could be rife. So he's Uh, without evidence. We've seen versions of this in other agencies where Trump has come in, put in one or two or three, uh, and sometimes they they get they get tossed out on the first couple tries. But eventually, gets both the the head of the the administration, whatever that agency is, and and then he starts installing people lower below them to sort of say this is now the Trump position or the Coke position or the Bannon position, whatever it is. It sounds like he has been successful. Yeah, well, a key thing is that he then got a guy who had been a, a former radio host and conspiracy theorist who briefly served at the Department of Homeland Security, and he brought in a guy who had been an investigative lawyer for Republicans on Capitol Hill. And these two guys ended up starting to investigate individual reports and individual reporters. Uh, there were issues with the Urdu service about whether or not uh, a short segment about Joe Biden trying to appeal to Muslim voters for a service trying to be aimed at Pakistanis, not aimed at this country, they said this was clear electioneering and this was a violation of uh, various laws and the Hatch Act and and would be constitute undue fair uh, uh, helping of Joe Biden. The most disturbing incident of the several that I was able to find involved an investigation into the White House bureau chief, perhaps the best known reporter for Voice of America, certainly the best known in Washington, highly respected, a very down the middle guy. They took individual tweets that he had tweeted out as well as stories. And they said, you know, because in that specific tweet, you didn't have the rebuttal to a claim being made by a Democrat or a liberal about Trump, uh, that showed your personal bias. And reporters there, you know, basically said, how can any of us do our jobs if if we're recommended for either dismissal or, as in this case, uh, recusal and reassignment simply by virtue of trying to report on developments in the political sphere? We've seen Trump do this State Department, uh, EPA, now at the CDC. And in many cases, it's very hard to imagine being able to restore those agencies uh, post-Trump. That'll take years to sort of root out the, the the rot that he's put in there and also to convince people to come back and work there or to start a new career there. Do you see a similar sort of long repair job for Voice of America? Is it possible Voice of America never gets back to where it was because there won't be energy and, and, and enthusiasm for funding a state-run media operation? Well, so I can cut this both ways. On the one hand, I'd say that you've seen actually pretty strong bipartisan support uh, for the journalistic protections at these agencies, particularly in the House of Representatives, but behind the scenes, the senators as well, they're pretty ticked off about what PAC has done because they took a party line vote to uh, endorse his nomination in the Senate. And then he's been embarrassing them with a series of problematic developments that we and a few others have been reporting on. In addition, you've seen a lot of people stick around and try to honor the principles of the Voice of America in particular. Uh, and the other agencies without 
uh, stirring his attention and ire. Let's just try to gut this out till January 20th. Let's try to get through the election. I mean, people were doing this before the election. They right. said, we're not Democrats. We just want to be under an administration of either party that respects us, and it's not going to be this one. So they wanted to see. And given that Biden's win, people are like, you know, can we survive? The, the other way you can think about it is, A, there's a lot of time to, for example, he named only acting directors of all these broadcast networks. He could name permanent ones and see what happens if a Biden appointee were to come back and somehow uh, then be accused of political bias mm -hmm. by pulling out his guys. He's also, you know, he, he's did this thing with visas where he refused to approve. And I've, I've seen some of the paperwork on some of this stuff, but he's refused to approve either the extension or the granting of a certain kind of visas that allow people who speak foreign languages and have broadcast capabilities for some of these languages. I mean, they broadcast in like 170 languages or something. It's very hard to get people that you can hire to who can both be fluent in languages and do broadcast. So you get foreigners to do this in certain cases. And when they are thrown out, sometimes they have to return to countries where the home regime is not favorably inclined towards people who've worked for the federal government. That is going to make it much more perilous for people to accept those jobs. Uh, and finally, I want to say that what he's done by attacking publicly with such damaging rhetoric, the Voice of America and these other agencies, is he's given comfort to those regimes who are disconcerted by American reporting to say that's fake news or to say they're spies. Radio Free Asia was one of the leading news organizations that revealed the Chinese repression of the Muslim minority Uyghurs in west of China. And when there was, uh, in the Baltics, these protests that happened because uh, the leader of, uh, I think, was it Belarus? Forgive me if I'm blanking at the moment. I believe so. Uh, was refusing to vacate government after losing the presidency. People were chanting Radio Free Europe because their reporters had been presenting the true results, even as their regime was clamping down on domestic broadcasters from reporting what happened. And when you damage the credibility from the inside of an institution, it can be tough to gain it back. Donald Trump is famously uninterested in almost all matters of, of government. He doesn't uh, read his presidential daily briefing. I'm quite sure that he's not keeping up on what's going on in Belarus. Who, who is the person in his ear getting him to do this? Uh, who's, whose agenda is this? You know, this uh, is consistent with Steve Bannon, uh, who uh, has ties to a Chinese uh, exile, uh, some kind of political dissident who was accused by the Chinese of being uh, uh, corrupt and on whose yacht yes. Bannon was arrested uh, not so many weeks ago. Uh, he had this incident where he was being broadcast, I believe, live uh, in a three-hour interview uh, for... Voice of America's China service, and it was pulled down in the middle of it as as top executives were like, we don't do that for anyone. Why are we giving him this much time? And it seems as though he is, uh, he and some of his conservative allies have had a bit of a vendetta. It does also seem, look, this nomination was first made in 2018, and it just mm -hmm. kind of went away. Yep. And I want to make a full disclosure. Uh, one of his Michael Pack's predecessors was John Lansing, who's currently our CEO, but who has, I can tell you, the firewall's intact there. We report positive and negative things about our leadership, and we have very strict protocols people can read about on our website that uh, prevent any NPR executive or news executive from reading any of our coverage before Yeah, you've got broadcast. that disclosure on your, on your story. Well, it's very important to me because that's, that's the only way I would do it, and that's in my contract. But saying all of that, Pack was kind of languishing for over two years. And it seemed as though 
things picked up steam after uh, Mick Mulvaney was replaced by Mark Meadows as the chief of staff. And you saw in April, uh, Meadows, I think, came in towards the end of March. In April, you started to see the White House actually take aim at VOA over the question of the coronavirus and attack VOA for disseminating what it called, you know, essentially Chinese propaganda. Uh, And I believe Trump tweeted against Voice America as well uh, for what turned out to be simply relaying Associated Press stories. So we're we're going with we're going with Bannon here. Bannon, who was supposedly excommunicated from the White House, who who's been showing up a lot over the last uh, uh, several months, never really went away. Or maybe he did, I, and then he came back. I can't prove that it's that it's Steve Bannon. What I can say, it's consistent with what he wanted. I will and, speculate wildly and say it's Steve Bannon. And I count on you for that. Um, thank you for coming on, explaining all this to me. A pleasure. Great to join you, David Volkov. Look, we will see and hear from you again in the near future. Take care. You bet. Thanks again to David. Thanks again to Reeves for coming by this week. Really enjoyed both those chats. Thanks again to Joel and Jelani for editing and producing this show. You guys rock. Thanks again to our sponsors. And thanks to you for listening. This is Recode Media. We've got plenty of free new content coming your way very soon.